Good early afternoon, everyone. This is once again, Danny Hai Fong. Hello, hello. Happy lunch hour if you are on the Eastern time time zone. I wanted to do what will be probably a relatively brief stream, maybe an hour, hour and a half, go over a few things, go over a few announcements that I have, including a great live stream, actually two great live streams tomorrow and the next day. And I thought I would also then give you some analysis of my thoughts on ongoing developments regarding Ukraine. And of course, getting back to the question of China, there have been a few things, a few interesting, I think, articles and reports that China has come out with separate, but also very deeply connected to the Ukraine crisis which I think are worth talking about because, well, no one else is. And so first, I just want to start out by saying, once again, good afternoon. If you're on the Eastern Time time zone, if you are out here on the East Coast of the United States, happy lunch hour. If you are in another part of the world, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. So let's just first start with the announcements. And while I am talking about these announcements, which I will also talk about at the end of the stream for those who may be coming in late, please do like the stream. Please do share the stream. Don't forget to hit the notifications bell. And also don't forget to, if you're able to uh, subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. That is how you support this show. So announcement number one, I'll just go in the order of the date. So tomorrow, Margaret Kimberly and I return and we will be joined by Gerald Horn, Dr. Gerald Horn. And he will be coming on to discuss his article that he published with Black Agenda Report a few issues ago now about the Ukraine crisis. It's about uh, from crisis to catastrophe, what is to be done in Eastern Europe. It's a fabulous piece. It's a great a brief analysis and historical review of the overall situation that Russia has faced and Eastern Europe has faced over the course of centuries. And we, knowing Gerald Horn, he knows how to go back centuries with his historical mind and so we will talk about the black radical perspective, the black left perspective on the Ukraine crisis and use his article as reference. So you want to catch that tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern time. That's 4 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow right here on this channel. Of course, I will post it on the channel in, in on the community posts and I will be sharing that on my social media as well. And in addition to that, Saturday, Saturday at noon Eastern time as well, uh, sort of the same time as this stream today, but it'll be on a Saturday. So hopefully more, even more of you can come out. Friends of Socialist China, which I co-edit, is hosting a great event, which I am going to screen share in a moment. But this event is called China in uh, well, 21st Century Socialism, China in Latin America on the Front Lines. Once again, that's 21st Century Socialism, China and Latin America on the Front Lines. What makes this special now 
is the fact that we were able to get Dilma Rousseff, the former president of Brazil, who unfortunately was a victim of a coup during the Obama era, but she will be speaking about uh, Latin America and China's friendship and probably a whole host of other topics. Again, she was a former president of Brazil, was a victim of a right-wing lawfare coup backed by the United States, and she also has been a longtime leader in the Workers' Party. So I am going to put this on the screen here, the Eventbrite. Then I'm going to share the link in the chat. So here is the event once again. It's 21st Century Socialism, China and Latin America on the front line. It's not at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. And then you also have uh, some other options like, you know, be, uh, you know, in China, it'll be, I think, something like midnight over there. But nonetheless, we will have speakers from all over the world talking about multipolarity, China and Latin America's growing friendship, this global transition to socialism, which both China and Latin America are out in front of, and also talking about really key issues like the legacy of Hugo Chavez and the role of internationalism in the ways in which Latin America and China approach economic development, integration, solidarity, etc., etc. And so here are the confirmed speakers. You have Dilma Rousseff, who will give the keynote address, and that is going to be incredible. So make sure that you register for this event, everyone. We also have Mahui, who is a wonderful person. He is China's ambassador to Cuba. He has a Twitter account, which is very interesting to follow because he talks about these topics often. And so you definitely want to catch him. We'll have uh, Carlos Miguel Pereira, who's Cuba's ambassador to China, right? So we definitely are covering the gambit diplomatically and politically. Carlos Ron, who's the president of the Simone Bolivar Institute and longtime advisor of the uh, Bolivarian movement and a leader in it. We have Zhang Shishui, who is the director for Latin America for the Center of Latin American Studies in Shanghai University? Then, of course, we have some U.S. activists too: Margaret Kimberly, uh, the editor of Black Agenda Report, the executive editor; Ben Norton, who I had on not too long ago, who edits Multipolarista; Camila Escalante over at Kasachuan News, she's incredible as well. Elias Jabor, who's a professor, a Marxist economist over at the Rio de Janeiro State University out in Brazil. And then, of course, we're going down the line. Francisco Dominguez, an activist in Britain with the Venezuela Solidarity Campaign. Carlos Martinez, my colleague and comrade, who was also on the stream with Ben Norton, who is the co-editor of Friends of Socialist China. And we have the great Radhika Desai over at International Manifesto Group chairing. So you don't want to miss this event right? Uh, so I'm going to just copy and paste this in the chat if that's helpful. And it, you can find this event also pinned at Socialist China, the Twitter account. So just at Socialist China on Twitter, if that is easier for you. But I am going to put this in the chat now. And please do 
please do register because uh, we're trying to get Dilma a good audience. We've been working hard at promoting this event. And a lot of people are Zoomed out. It's been years and years, a couple of years now of just a Zoom only sort of interaction. And I, and I get it. It's hard to ingest all of this, but I think this will be worth it. So uh, definitely do register. So with that said, if you are just coming on this stream, do like it, do share it, do hit the notifications bell and make sure that you subscribe to the channel. And of course, if you're able, uh, subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. That's how you can support this show. So with that said, those are the two big announcements, right? Stream with Gerald Horn tomorrow, right here on the left lens. Margaret Kimberly will join me. We will talk about the Black Left perspective on the Ukraine crisis and review Gerald Horn's incredible article in Black Agenda Report from a few issues ago about what is to be done in Eastern Europe now that this crisis has turned into a catastrophe. And then the next day at 12 Eastern time, 12 noon Eastern time, of course, do not miss Dilma Rousseff and all of the others I mentioned speak about 21st century socialism, China on the front line held by Friends of Socialist China. You can register on the Eventbrite and you can also uh, catch the stream at the Friends of Socialist China YouTube page. Okay, so I'm going to move on now. So let's talk about latest developments with Ukraine before I get into China, because I do have a few things that I want to cover. And I mean, here's the deal. Here's what's been happening. So yesterday, of course, you may know that Russia and Ukraine met again for talks. There, there are sort of these hints that there could be a peace agreement on the way. There are some hints that NATO, well, not NATO, but that Ukraine is willing to renounce, right, to, to embrace neutrality and renounce future NATO membership. There is some indications that this may occur in the near future. But it's unclear because there's a, there's a contradiction here. On the one hand, you have these peace talks happening almost on a, a regular basis, right? It seems like almost every week now they are gathering, uh, delegates from Russia, from Ukraine are gathering to talk about how they are going to end this conflict, right? Which uh, a ceasefire and, of course, security guarantees on both sides. That That's what's being discussed. However, it, it was very troubling this week to see that at the same time that this is happening, Ukraine's president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, was going around the two... One of the, well, the United States is the foremost imperialist power, and then Canada. So he visited Canadian Parliament, I believe. Well, he zoomed into Canadian Parliament and then U.S. Parliament. I believe, was, I believe that was the fifteenth and sixteenth of March, so just the last few days, right? So he addressed Canada's Parliament and he addressed the U.S.'s Congress, and this was a Zoom conversation that he had with U.S. Congress. I believe it was a private conversation, so it wasn't necessarily an official congressional uh, gathering. It was several hundred Congress members who obviously are thirsty for the Russia-Ukraine war to continue. 
giving Volodymyr Zelensky the airtime to essentially call for World War III. And what do I mean by that? So Volodymyr Zelensky, as peace talks are actually progressing, both sides are saying that there is a possibility that this progression could lead somewhere. You have Volodymyr Zelensky, the so-called president of Ukraine, begging the United States, demanding right a no-fly zone. And I've talked about this before. What would a no-fly zone mean for Ukraine? So what it would mean for Ukraine is that a no-fly zone would give permission for NATO to essentially cut off airspace, to occupy Ukraine's airspace, and to use Ukraine as a launching pad for a broader war against Russia. And what this would immediately look like is that NATO would start shooting down Russia, Russian planes out of the sky. And Russia would then likely respond, and I'm going to get into an interesting thread for, on Twitter that I found that I think describes this to the T. Russia would probably respond with their S-400 anti-aircraft uh, missile uh, carriers, their weapons. And I mean, those can go 400 kilometers and would likely be able to strike down any sort of attempts to launch at Russian forces uh, within Ukraine. And so that would mean that NATO would essentially then have to strike Russian territory to take out those S-400s, right? So essentially what it means is that there would just be an escalation after an escalation leading to a potential nuclear conflict because in order for NATO to really establish a no-fly zone against a military power like Russia, right? A, a country that does have a military capacity that is not equal to the United States, at least in scale, but technologically it is very close, if not in some ways more advanced than the United States and NATO, uh, that Russia would be able to respond. So you'd have this tit for tat that would lead to not just Russian forces being attacked on Ukraine's soil, but potentially Russian forces on Russia's territory being attacked by NATO as well. And every response by Russia could trigger Article 5 in NATO's so-called constitution, which would then require all NATO countries, right, all the countries surrounding Russia, all the countries that are in Russia's periphery to intervene in some way. And so that's where you have this potential world war scenario and a potential nuclear scenario. So it begs the question, why would Volodymyr Zelensky call for this kind of destruction, right? Why would Volodymyr Zelensky believe that it's a good idea to establish a no-fly zone over his own country? Because if Zelensky is a student of history, even just the last 30 years of history, there are two really critical cases of how no-fly zones have been absolutely disastrous for the countries that they were established in. So during the U.S.-NATO bombing campaign of Yugoslavia, there was a no-fly zone established there, and NATO just targeted civilian infrastructure and essentially carved up Yugoslavia uh, through just this all-out campaign, this blazing campaign of destruction. And uh, that was all 
in the name of establishing this no-fly zone and protecting Yugoslavia from itself, protecting these breakaway, these carved up statelets that the U.S. and NATO were supporting. And one by one, weakening and weakening and weakening through the decimation of the Yugoslav Federation, uh, this just utter disaster that that occurred there and it ended in 1999 in the most disgusting of manner right uh, the assassination of milosevic and or or at least the triangle of milosevic and the overthrow essentially of that republic which spelled just extreme suffering for the people of serbia the people everywhere in that region were just being destined their, their conditions declined mightily it became a real hub of the sex trade and poverty rose immensely and you saw the rise of right-wing forces even of jihadist forces right become hugely influential and it sounds a little bit familiar right because it sounds a bit like ukraine it sounds a bit like ukraine what happened in yugoslavia yugoslavia was carved into pieces its socialist republic was destroyed and while Ukraine was not a socialist republic post-1991, after it became independent when the Soviet Union fell, certainly Ukraine prior to 2014 was more was a united country in the sense that it, its borders had integrity. And it was not yet split wholesale between the East and the West. But now it is. And after the coup, that became a dire reality, right? The Ukraine coup government launched this brutal assault, dare I say genocidal campaign against the people of Donbass, Donetsk, Lugansk, and the surrounding region. And that's killed thousands upon thousands. Uh, some people say 14,000 people have died in that so-called conflict, which is really a war on the people of Eastern Ukraine. And uh, 23 more died uh, just in less than a week ago, right, where the Ukraine, their Ukrainian military launched a ballistic missile, which killed 23 people, including women and children, civilians, people who were just going about their daily lives. I mean, that's been the character of the assault from the beginning. And it's what led to the establishment of these independent republics that have now been recognized by Russia, which scaled up and escalated the impetus for intervention that Russia has waged. So Vladimir Zelensky right, has Yugoslavia as a reference to, to understand what a no-fly zone would mean. And maybe Zelensky thinks he's not Milosevic, he's not Yugoslavia, right? He's not Serbia, right? That he's actually in the good graces of the U.S., in NATO at this time. But I mean, that's a mistaken judgment by Zelensky. And, and oftentimes puppets don't have any kind of judgment worth noting, right? They don't have their own independent political worldview or mindset. They just do what their masters tell them to do, what their imperialist masters tell them to do. So a no-fly zone, right? was also established in Libya in 2011. 
And right after that no-fly zone was established, NATO started bombing key public infrastructure, including uh, the great man-made river in Libya, which was the source of most of the country's water supply. And NATO bombed that and obliterated it, right? So NATO was intentionally targeting civilian infrastructure, intentionally placing even more suffering upon the Libyan people that was already at a fever pitch when the U.S. and NATO and all of their allies in the Gulf countries and Israel were arming these jihadists of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and other kinds of Al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations to wage a campaign of terror, which the no-fly zone protected and ultimately made rendered successful and made successful through a no-fly zone. So that destroyed the country, and Libya's government was destroyed, overthrown. The Jamahiriya was obliterated. And all we've seen since 2011 over the last decade has been chaos, has been, right? There's all the reports about the return of slavery, but it's not even just that, right? It's the fact that Libya does not have a functioning government, doesn't even have a functioning puppet government to speak of because of how the war devastated any kind of stability and allow these armed groups to become the political force in the country, leading the country and fighting for control over the country, that has inevitably led to Libya once being this energy hub, once being a country that could meet the needs of its own people. It was the most prosperous country in Africa at that time prior to the 2011 intervention. People had education, healthcare. Right. I even met someone when I was in Massachusetts who had a family who migrated here and she was getting paid a very decent sum of money. I think it was around four to five thousand a month to live in the United States so that her children could receive an education. And so Libya had a really robust social welfare system, a really robust uh, political system that was geared towards the needs of the people. And of course, Libya was also a stalwart, a leader in supporting the solidarity movements from Ireland to Palestine to South Africa, Mozambique, right? The liberation movements in Africa against colonialism. And uh, Muammar Gaddafi had plans through the African Union to establish an independent military for the African continent and to establish a, a gold reserve currency, the dinar, which would effectively move the African continent away from dependence on the U.S. dollar, which has been a huge problem for these uh, intensely indebted African nations, which have depended upon IMF loans and Western finance to ultimately uh, develop and control their economies. And that has been a disaster. It's led to just overwhelming poverty and stagnation and crisis for much of the continent. And so Gaddafi had this vision and the United States and NATO used a no-fly zone to take him out. So Zelensky probably understands that he's not Muammar Gaddafi and that likely wouldn't happen to him. But I think where he's miscalculating is the fact that the United States and NATO doesn't really care about Zelensky, so to speak, doesn't care about Ukraine's overall stability and its interests. What's driving Zelensky to call for a no-fly zone is ultimately the weapons contractors, the militarists 
behind the United States and NATO. I mean, NATO countries are forced to purchase U.S. produced weapons, and most of them come from military contractors like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. That's why the stocks are booming right now. The stocks are booming for these corporations because they see the prospect of a conflict that could have this permanent market value for them. And that is why Zelensky begs for this no-fly zone, even as representatives of his own country are trying to broker a ceasefire agreement. There's obviously powerful interests that do not want to see a ceasefire agreement. And so Zelensky is willing to promote a policy and call for a policy that would lead the country into a third world war. And it would not be pretty for Ukraine because regardless of how you look at this, whether it's Russia now having to scale up its military operations because of a no-fly zone, as well as NATO weaponry using Ukraine as a launching pad, none of that spells good things for Ukraine's overall stability. It spells just destruction and chaos. And if Zelensky thinks he would be safe from that, I think that is just one of the most ridiculous accusation, uh, ridiculous assertions that one could make if we were to put ourselves in his shoes. The only thing that could keep Zelensky safe from either popular revolt or the fact that a no-fly zone would intensify the military situation in the country and put a big target on his back, right? Because immediately the Ukraine's government would become an enemy state, especially on the Russian side. It would become an enemy state on the Russian side, any of Russia's allies, right? So that's a target on your back. And the only thing that could save Zelensky in that way would be to be airlifted out of the country to safety, right? There are rumors that the imperialists were already doing that. That has already happened. It has not been verified. But that is the only thing that could keep Zelensky safe in such a scenario. So he's probably banking on that. But for us, we can't bank on that because we're not the imperialist puppet masters, or at least people who watch my show aren't puppeteer, you know, aren't, aren't being puppeted around by imperialism. Maybe some of you, maybe some of the trolls have this idea that there's a vested interest in them for World War III, but most people just don't believe that. So in effect, we have to be very firm and say no to a no-fly zone, that this is an absolute disaster. And it's something, honestly, that the U.S. and NATO have not seriously entertained. So here's the other thing. The United States, for all of its so-called support for Ukraine, is not trying to help Ukraine fast-track membership into even the European Union, right? Because the U.S. at the heart of this Russia-Ukraine crisis wants to see Europe starve as well. It wants Europe to come begging for U.S. fracked gas and energy. It wants to cut Europe away from the Asian market. It wants to do all of those things. So it's not going to say, okay, Ukraine, become part of the EU and strengthen the EU. No, the U.S. is actively preventing such a scenario from occurring. And then you have the fact that the U.S. is not fast-tracking a, a formalized membership for Ukraine into NATO. They're not going to do that either. And the reason for it is because Ukraine is not viewed as valuable to the imperialists. It's not. It's only valuable insofar as it can be used as a launch pad for its larger new Cold 
war on Russia. That's the only value that Ukraine has for the U.S. and NATO. So, of course, the U.S. and NATO will use Ukraine as the place, as a sort of de facto NATO state along Russia's border. Of course, it will do that. But to formalize that relationship would ultimately bring Ukraine into a status of somewhat equality, at least with the other NATO states. The United States doesn't view any of these countries, whether it's the European countries like Germany or whether it's the uh, smaller countries like Turkey. It doesn't view any of them like equals. But then you have the sub, maybe like the junior imperialist countries who also don't want to see Ukraine be elevated to the status of equal, right? That would be absolutely preposterous in their minds. And some of it is ideological, but it's also political because one of the ways that imperialism gets its way is not merely by expansion, but it's about creating crises. So even just the conversation about NATO membership, the, the idea that Ukraine is, is being threatened in and of itself that gives imperialism all it needs to justify its interventions. You bring Ukraine into NATO, and now you have a troublesome dynamic where you are now on the accountable side, right? It's not just Russia is being evil. Now you have admitted Ukraine, and you've created a political situation that might be untenable and lead to this third world war we've been talking about. So that is a big piece of this is that the United States is playing its own kind of chess. It makes up its own rules to this game of chess, right? It's not playing the chess that Russia and China have been playing, right? In terms of multipolarity and figuring out how to navigate in this very hostile global context dominated by imperialism. That's not the chess game they're playing. They're playing the imperialists led by the United States and NATO are playing a chess of their own making, right? They're making up the rules as they go along in using geopolitics as a mechanism for measuring just how far they can go to antagonize Russia, to expand their dominance, to sanction Russia, to do all of these things that have been happening with the least possible consequences for them, right? It's always about this cost-benefit analysis. The economy, the capitalist economists, when they say that term, that's a term that's used throughout in military strategy across the bourgeois, the imperialist landscape, right? And so we also have to employ that here and think how are they are thinking, how these NATO strategists, right, how they're thinking about this conflict. And they certainly, that's why Biden says over and over and over again, we're not going to send troops into Ukraine. We're not going to have NATO directly fight Ukraine uh, for Ukraine, but we will support our NATO allies, which excludes Ukraine, but also gives the United States the space to say, here are these weapons. Here is this weaponry we can send to Poland. We can send directly to Ukraine. We can send to these third-party countries in NATO. And then we can say, well, we did our job. And let's see how this goes, right? Let's see where this goes and what political opportunities and economic opportunities for the military contractors, for the energy corporations, fossil fuels, where that can go. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically where we're at with our, our friend Zelensky here. He just shows himself to be more and more of a puppet every step of the way. You know, every 
single development that involves him just exposes more and more what his role is. And he was elected in 2019 on a mandate to implement a ceasefire, to really implement the ceasefire, the Minsk II Accords, with the East and to abide by them. And that did not happen. And it's only worsened since his reign, the assault on Donbass. And he was also elected on the idea that Ukraine would move further toward neutrality, that it would not be as friendly toward the idea of NATO membership. And then we've seen what has happened over the last, what is it now, four months, right, since November. There's just been this clamoring and clamoring to protect Ukraine from Russia. And now this intervention has given more steam into that. And it'll be curious to see how this all develops. But I do believe, right, that there is a possibility of a peace agreement, a ceasefire happening soon. But will it be enforced? Will Ukraine abide by the agreement or will the U.S. and NATO place pressure, right, in ways that maybe we can't see that continues the fighting in some way, right, that maybe continues the assault on eastern Ukraine and places even more pressure on Russia to maybe think about breaking the ceasefire. There's so many possibilities. We saw, I mean, we're seeing all of this false flag kind of material, right? All of this propaganda that's coming out. The Mariupol hospital bombing that was completely fake news. Now there's this children's, there's this theater that's supposed to have children in it. It's completely unverified, and we don't know if Russia actually bombed it or if Russia actually bombed children and people. It's not validated at the moment, and Russia's foreign ministry is saying, no, do not listen to the reports. So now we, we should question what actually had has gone on there in this most recent bombing. And then, of course, we had the bioweapon possibility, bioweapons possibility with these labs that had been found where the U.S. Department of Defense had been funding them. And Victoria Nuland told uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee that, you know, there's a danger of Russia getting this information. And that insinuated that possibly there is a bioweapons attack. And now you see some of the corporate media saying, oh, no, if Russia gets this information, it's going to launch a bioweapons attack false flag. And so that that's all very suspicious, but it nonetheless all points to the same direction, that there is this propaganda campaign that is meant to prolong the war, and the United States and NATO is doing absolutely nothing in good faith to bring down or de-escalate the situation. They're not engaging in diplomacy. They're not engaging in any kind of peace talks. You had Joe Biden at the State of the Union claim that it's Russia that isn't doing it, when in fact Russia from back in December had called for diplomacy, had called for the idea that there could be security guarantees met on both sides, but that Russia's had to be taken seriously. And they weren't. The United States and NATO and Ukraine, by extension, rejected them, rejected Russia. And so that's what led to all of this. It led to this escalation and escalation. And we couldn't have predicted that it would have been inevitable for this intervention to occur. But Russia had been warning about how there would be consequences. And maybe it's on us also to understand that we cannot underestimate 
the fact that countries that are provoked and antagonized and militarily encircled and sanctioned, right, that eventually there will be a response, a response that may be not equal in measure, because I do not see the Russia-Ukraine situation as equal in measure if we look at the broad historical context to what NATO has done. Because not only has NATO been directly responsible for the tens of plus 10,000 plus people who have died in eastern Ukraine through the militarization of Ukraine and also a heavy hand in the overthrow of Ukraine's government, which led to that civil war, but also regionally the role that NATO has played in eastern Europe and in the former Soviet bloc states, right, in keeping this state of destitution and dependency, which has its own consequences, right, the role that NATO played in the fall of the Soviet Union. So you could really put NATO's hands on all uh, on all of that blood that happened after the fall of the Soviet Union. And of course, I mentioned the Yugoslav war, the invasion of Yugoslavia. And of course, NATO's role all around the world, from Libya to Syria to Iraq, right? I mean, Yemen, we can't, we can't underestimate or decontextualize what's happening in Ukraine without understanding NATO's role everywhere. And so Zelensky begging for a no-fly zone is essentially begging for his country to become like those victim nations that have faced NATO's onslaught in the past, right? And so anyone who claims that a no-fly zone is some kind of peace demand that it would get Russia to back off are either disingenuous or don't know what it means because there are about three out of five Americans who think that they want a no-fly zone, but of course they don't know what a no-fly zone is. They were not properly informed when Libya was being destroyed just 11 years ago. They were not properly informed during the mid to late 1990s when NATO was decimating Yugoslavia, and they haven't been properly informed about NATO's role in arming, stoking, antagonizing, and provoking all of these wars and conflicts and crises that have been raging worldwide in nearly every continent for the past several years. So people are not properly informed. They're propagandized. And the U.S. is the most propagandized country in the world. And that means that Zelensky can go to Congress calling for a no-fly zone. And even if the U.S. says, no, 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 I don't think we can, you can still have this propaganda course about it and continue to manufacture that continues to manufacture consent for war and keeps that on the table. Because even though I do believe that the U.S. and NATO might not want it right now, they do want all of the tools at their disposal on the table that have a possibility of being used when the time is right. And so that's why the propaganda is so useful. Because if you can make sure that all the tools at your disposal are palatable to masses of people, then when the time is right, then potentially the resistance to it will be a lot less. But of course, that could also be a miscalculation too, given that most people don't want to see a direct US intervention, don't want to see another war like Afghanistan and Iraq, even if it may be for more selfish reasons, self-interested reasons, which aren't illegitimate, but also are not necessarily based on a political worldview of solidarity and anti-interventionism and anti-imperialism. It's more so that I think most Americans who have any experience with war understand that it just doesn't benefit them and that it's likely either to kill them, make them incredibly mentally and economically unstable, 
and uh, send them to countries that they have no interest in going in for better or for worse, right? <laughs> for reasons of they just don't see the value of being shipped to an Iraq or Afghanistan, or uh, whether it is that they would rather just have the perks of the military that the military promises them through the GI Bill, et cetera, without the consequences. And, and, and all of that can be understandable given the political situation that we're in. So it's not necessarily a judgment. It's just a statement of fact that this is what's going on in the minds of Americans who have experience with wars in some direct capacity, ordinary people who join the military, right? These, these are people that we also have to reach with the peace message. And so we have to understand how they think. With that said, though, there isn't really much more to comment on with Zelensky, right? Zelensky is a puppet. I just wanted to talk about that development because I found it so striking that in the midst of a war which possibly has a solution and could have been brought to a speedy end very quickly, right? Ukraine could have just declared neutrality, established a mechanism for recognizing Russia's security guarantees that it's asking for, and also establish its own security guarantees. I, I don't believe that Russia would necessarily renounce those, right? NATO membership, not, not a question. That would not be allowed. Militarizing yourself with, with U.S. weapons and NATO weapons to become a de facto NATO state, also not allowed. But there could be other security guarantees, right? And Russia perhaps would have listened to them. But I don't think we are at that place anymore. I think that there's so much pressure on Ukraine to keep up this very contradictory posture. And that places, in turn, pressure on Russia to continue this intervention to its final and logical conclusion, which is the complete submission of Ukraine's government, its military apparatus in particular, to Russia, to Russia's interests. So either Zelensky comes to the table, right, and starts to cooperate with what has been happening, Ukraine and Russia meeting together saying, okay, we're talking out these differences and we are getting somewhere. Either he gets on board or Ukraine, Ukraine's military and in effect, society, because the military is fighting within the society. So the society is also going to really reap a lot of costs. We see it with the refugees. We see it with the institutions and uh, the damage to Ukraine society worth billions of dollars. I mean, that's that's all the real costs of war. And so these very simple and honestly uh, just completely congruent demands with the norms of international law, right? Neutrality is completely within the boundaries of the UN convention. So it's not like these are just out of the question. It's not like Russia is asking for occupation of Ukraine or to plunder its economy or to have any kind of dual control of the government. That's not what Russia is asking even now. Russia scaled up its demands to include, it might sound huge, but it's, it doesn't seem huge to me when Ukraine has been so despondent. But now Russia wants Ukraine to change its constitution to enshrine neutrality and recognize Donetsk and Lugansk as independent states and also Crimea as uh, Russian territory, which has been the case since 2015 during the referendum. 
And the reason why is because Ukraine has been actively cutting off key food, water, resources, electricity from these regions and trying to starve them out while also shelling and destroying Donbass at the same time militarily. So Russia wants that to stop and it wants Ukraine's government to enshrine that within its constitution that it won't just right agree to something like Minsk, but that its entire government will have a constitutional mandate to follow these peace accords. So Zelensky's not on board when he calls for a no-fly zone. And that should really give us an idea of where Ukraine's government is at, where this puppet is at in terms of seriousness about peace. And so we can only continue to observe and continue to call for, right? So observe the developments and then continue to call for what I think is the only I think is the only way that we will see lasting peace. I think immediately I want to see the I want to see Russia I want to see Ukraine neutral and I want to see these two countries come to an agreement. In the long term, the only thing that's going to ensure peace is the dissolution of NATO, the the destruction of NATO, the abolition of NATO. That's it because the more that NATO militarily encircles Russia, and the more that it sets its sights on this Indo-Pacific strategy that the United States has, the more that both Russia and China will have increased interest to defend itself from imperialism, right? Militarily. There's no doubt about that. And while I don't see these kind of conflicts happening all the time, they become more and more possible. So if you really don't want to see that, right? If you don't want to see these wars from launching, then you have to get rid of the root cause of endless war in the world. And that is NATO. I mean, that is NATO to a large degree. The United States is the heart within that uh, body and with that in, in that armor, right? In that imperialist armor. But NATO is, in this case, especially the root cause. And so that has to be disbanded for there to be a lasting peace. And that's it, right? I mean, that's not it. There are plenty of other factors that are in play. But until we get to a place where there is the possibility for that happening, we can expect that Russia will continue to look to defend itself. And we can expect that the entire world will be watching and framing this in in various ways that meets the interests of whatever pole these countries sit on. So for NATO, it's always going to be Russian aggression, right? Russia's being aggressive. For Russia, it's going to be self-defense and territorial integrity and sovereignty and the right to have its interests guaranteed, given that it has also the right to be treated equally in the arena of international affairs. That's That's what multipolarity really is all about, is building a world order where countries, regardless of their size and economic status, have more of a say and are able to equally participate in the affairs governing the world, the political, military, the economic, right? All of these developments that need attention in in international cooperation, multipolarity is supposed to facilitate that by allowing there to be multiple poles in the world, multiple systems of development, right? The recognition that all states have the right to exist that's just the first step toward this idea that, yeah, the, the world can be governed differently than just what the United States and NATO wants. 
And so that's where we're at with Ukraine. We're at the stage where we can watch and you right, watch the d developments happen. Russia will continue to advance. So we just got to get it out of our heads that Russia is just going to pull out. Russia is not going to do that until its security guarantees are taken seriously. And so the negotiations will continue to happen. And Zelensky, right, should be fo focused on in the sense that his behavior as a puppet of imperialism really threatens any kind of real hope for peace. And we have to be vigilant about that. We have to be vigilant about exposing that and showing that this is no hero. This is really, I mean, in all senses of the word, he's a traitor if you think that Ukraine's just well-being overall. It's not even just Russia conducting this military operation. It's just Ukraine's status in global politics, given how NATO and how the United States has also treated Ukraine. So if you care about Ukraine, you're not calling for a no-fly zone, and you're not supporting Vladimir Zelensky's call for World War III. You're not doing any of those things. You're calling for the abolishment of NATO. So I'm going to end my coverage of Ukraine there to continue on to China. I want to read an article first from the Global Times about NATO that I thought was very interesting given recent developments. So you all may have heard, and before I move on, please do like the stream. Please do subscribe to the channel. Please do hit the notifications bell so you can be notified about these streams. And then, of course, the way that you can support this show and my work, even for as little as $1 a month, $5 a month, right, is patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Uh, that's how you do it. I have an article coming out tomorrow, a stream with Margaret and Gerald Horn tomorrow. And, of course, uh, doing work with Friends of Socialist China for Saturday, as I announced. And I will get all back to that at the end of the stream. But please do support my work if you can uh, as I continue on in anti-imperialist uh, journalism. So that's patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. So you probably have heard China and the United States met a couple days ago. And... It was Yang Jiexi, the top diplomat of China, part of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China, and you had uh, he's uh, on the Politburo, and then you had Jake Sullivan, of course, the National Security Advisor to the United States, and the two countries met in Rome, Italy, to discuss a whole bunch of things. This included the Ukraine crisis, right before the meeting. Right. This is the evening. So this is China time. This is your, your, you know, I was, I was stuck between time zones, but it was late evening the day before, which was the day of, I believe, in Rome. The United States, Jake Sullivan, says to China, well, we believe that China is sending weapons to Russia to fight Ukraine, to invade Ukraine. China, of course, says that's preposterous. You have no evidence of that. We do not arm any side of this conflict. We are here to help with any kind of peaceful solution that can be brokered. And so, of course, the United States never followed up on its claims. It never does. It always just makes up innuendo to slander China, especially the China-Russia relationship. So that happened. 
And then the United States said another troubling thing about China. And it said that any effort from China to help alleviate the pain of economic sanctions that the U.S. is waging on Russia will be met with a response. So that's even more concerning, given that China is not going to, and this is just in the real sense, right? And rather than innuendo and being a complete, completely made up lie as China arming Russia to fight Ukraine, now we have something very real of China does have a strong economic partnership with Russia. It really does. And it's not going to stop because of this war. And China has made that clear that it doesn't believe in unilateral sanctions as a way to respond to any kind of geopolitical conflict. And so these, of course, were empty threats by Jake Sullivan. The United, what can the United States do to China? China has advanced technologically, is so embedded in the world economy that any kind of truly tectonic shift in economic relations between the U.S. and China would spell a lot of pain for the United States. And the trade war was a little bit of a taste of that with these tariffs. A lot of people were hurt by it. There were a lot of jobs lost and there was a lot of pain, especially for agricultural farmers, the soy industry, etc. Right? Costs went way up during the Trump era and a lot of people felt it bad and there was no support for them. So... China has a lot of leverage economically because it's not necessarily dependent upon Western financial institutions to develop its own industries as China, as the United States is so dependent upon global supply chains because of the nature of outsourcing, because of the nature of finance capital and monopoly capital in the United States. It's very dependent upon a stable base of the supply chains, right? It's very dependent on that. And so... That's why these are empty threats, that the United States cannot really leverage economically against China like it can Russia. The U.S. has become this energy leader in this fossil fuel nightmare. It has become, quote-unquote, energy independent because it spent a lot of time, um, because it spent a lot of time and a lot of money subsidizing fossil fuel corporations to pump this fracked gas, this sh this oil from the ground and into the global market to undermine countries like Venezuela and Iran and now Russia, of course, and also to satisfy the fossil fuel interests because, of course, new markets need to be opened where capital exists. So, yeah, the United States can temporarily undermine Russia brings pain still to working people everywhere because prices go up. These fossil fuel companies don't have an interest in ensuring that people aren't hurt by this. Uh, they see any kind of <clears throat> monopolizing of the market, like is what's happening. The U.S. monopolizing the market over Russia as an opportunity to jack up the prices. And that's what's going on, right? You cut off this so-called competition that ha that you have, right, in the gas and oil industry, and then you see the prices go way up. That's the nature of capitalism, right? Monopoly always brings this kind of economic pain for working people, but it's an inevitability. It's just that we have the specific form of it right now in the case of sanctions, which are an act of war, because they're going to hurt a whole lot of people, and they are hurting a whole lot of people. So I'm going to share this article 
China's response. It's an editorial in the Global Times, which is considered the tabloid of the People's Daily, which is the Communist Party of China's public sort of media outlet. So let me share my screen so we can just read this briefly, okay? And then we will get on to China's report on U.S. human rights. I won't probably read that word for word because it is getting late, but I will go over just some <clears throat> interesting parts about it. So here is the op-ed. It's called Unreasonable Sinister for NATO to Push China to Contemn Russia. This was published late yesterday. So I'm just going to read over this. It says, the Ukraine crisis was largely triggered by NATO's aggressive eastward expansion. The bloc is the culprit. Instead of reflecting on itself, NATO piles pressure on other countries to stand with it against Russia. This is unreasonable and quite sinister. Now, this is strong language, and this is a strong position. This is the position of most of people who are serious countries and people who are serious about peace, that NATO is the culprit. So I think we should take note of that. And it says, quote, China should join the rest of the world in condemning strongly the brutal invasion of Ukraine by Russia, says NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg on Tuesday. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is a blatant violation of international law, so we call on China to clearly condemn the invasion and, of course, not support Russia. And we are closely monitoring any signs of support from China to Russia. So this is what we're talking about here, this idea that China should be punished merely for having an economic partnership with Russia amid this war. And so what's ironic about this is that the United States has an equally sinister, as I'll use the language of the Global Times, campaign against China, this new Cold War. China doesn't owe the United States anything. China has been sanctioned economically, although uh, arguably not as painfully as Russia has been, but it has been sanctioned economically based on these quote-unquote human rights violations. It is being militarily encircled and continues to be. It has about 400 military bases encircling China, uh, the, and, and those are U.S. military bases located in Japan, Korea, the Philippines, right? Guam, Okinawa, which some people consider Japan, but it really is independent. It's a neo-colony, essentially, of Japan at this time. But <clears throat> nonetheless, China doesn't owe the United States anything. There's been such a diplomatic decline of relations between the two countries spearheaded by the United States, not on China's own doing. This needs to be placed on the United States' back, the blame for deterioration of relations between the two countries. And so to ask, similar to the United States going to Nicolas Maduro and saying, hey, can you break off ties with Russia and we'll give you very little, if not essentially nothing, but you know, do that and maybe we'll be a little bit closer. And Venezuela was like, no, Russia's a reliable partner and you're not. So we're having this very similar dynamic, except China, of course, on a world scale, uh, has just a more influence in so many ways in Venezuela, but nonetheless the same dynamic. But NATO is a puppet of the U.S., a Cold War military bloc manipulated by the U.S. The obsolete military organization has launched many ruthless military aggressions and triggered corresponding disasters in which local people underwent great suffering. NATO's aerial bombing campaign against the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia in 1999 during the Kosovo War 
is one example, as I said earlier. And in Belgrade, there were many people who were killed, Chinese people who were killed when the United States bombed the Chinese embassy there. So, I mean, this directly has, this has always directly affected China. And now NATO has also cited that the Indo-Pacific strategy is something that it is very interested in. So we have to also understand this. NATO is, is the most serious war machine that violates international law and endangers the sovereignty and territorial integrity of other countries since the end of the Cold War. Since when has the group become a defender of international law? If it is a defender of international law, could you please first apologize for their bombing of Yugoslavia? Could you first compensate for the bombing of the Chinese embassy in Yugoslavia in 1999, which left three journalists dead and more than 20 people injured? Stoltenberg is not qualified and has no right or moral basis to make such remarks, said Shen Yi, a professor at the School of International Relations and Public Affairs of Fudan University. The West has fallen to extreme insanity, and this is quite sick. This is also a symptom of growing abnormality of the international community under the coercion of the U.S. and its allies. Stoltenberg, Stoltenberg's rhetoric sounds like he attempted to label China as Russia's quote-unquote accomplice. In terms of tensions between Russia and Ukraine, there is no absolute right and wrong, as the geopolitics, history, and culture between them are too complicated. Their tensions are a difficult problem to solve. In this context, portraying their military conflict as good versus evil is not rational and detrimental to addressing it. So that's pretty strong language there from the Chinese side, from Global Times, right? We're talking about China being very clear that NATO is the enemy, right? And so there was some, I guess, thoughts that maybe China, when it decided to vote with an abstain vote, during the first condemnation of Russia at the UN Security Council, <clears throat> that this meant that China was neutral. And I do believe that in a lot of ways, China, of course, is going to play the role of peacemaker, is going to play the role of diplomat. It is not going to take a side, so to speak. But China has also been very clear that the only way to resolve conflict is through diplomacy and is through the brokering of a peace agreement and as you see here, it doesn't believe that blaming Russia as this or casting Russia in this evil light is helpful at all. And China's friendship with Russia will continue and all of Chinese officials who have anything to say on the matter from the foreign ministry have made this very clear that, no, this conflict is not a red line for China. China, as this article is stating, understands the complexities of this. And so Perhaps, just perhaps, we should as well understand the complexities of this. And that's what I've been trying to get through in these videos, that it's not a black and white conflict at all. So the Chinese ambassador to the U.S., Qin Gang, said in an opinion piece in the Washington Post that rumors like Russia was seeking military assistance from China are purely disinformation. All this is information war initiated by the U.S. and NATO to use this kind of information war to intimidate China and to coordinate Washington in an attempt to occupy the moral high ground over the Ukraine crisis. By making such statements, NATO is trying to distort the focus of the international community from criticizing its eastward expansion to China's so-called coordination with Russia. Uh, Zhang Chenzhuan, Deputy Director of the Department for Asia-Pacific Studies at the China Institute of International Studies, said, NATO is deliberately circumventing its role and responsibility to trying to shift the blame and confuse the public. This is very sinister. So there you have it. 
That is China's position on these allegations that honestly, I think, chilled the diplomatic talks between China and the U.S. from the beginning. That happened just a few days ago. Nothing came out of it concrete. And because the United States never comes prepared to actually make real diplomatic concessions, because that's the only way U.S.-China relations are going to get back on any kind of normal track is if China's interests, like Russia's interests, are taken seriously and acted upon. The United States never comes prepared to do that. And so just as the United States is pressuring Ukraine's government to continue on with this no-fly zone, give us help, send us help, please, 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 this begging for the war to continue on the part of Zelensky, you also have the U.S. <clears throat> sabotaging any attempts between China and uh, Jake Sullivan and the top diplomats of China to come into any kind of agreement on any issues for cooperation. No, immediately the United States started talking as if China is to blame for Russia's intervention because China is not checking their partners. And that is exactly what Global Times, this Global Times op-ed said. That is sinister. That is lying to people. That is a lie, right? China and Russia do not operate on the basis of puppet and puppet master. They operate on the basis of mutual and equal partners. And that means that China has absolutely no say in what Russia decides to do politically to uh, assert its own interests. And uh, China and Russia only assert their influence upon each other, right, in issues of importance that are directly, uh, you know, that are directly impactful for them economically, diplomatically, uh, militarily, right? But other than China's economic interests in ensuring that Ukraine is stable, China doesn't really have any kind of say in this fight. And it knows that. It knows that Russia has been antagonized and provoked. It knows about the criminal 2014 coup. It knows all of these things, right? There are countries in the world, China being one of them, that are not just puppets of the United States. They understand from an independent lens how geopolitics have been developing over the past several years and over the last several decades. And they are making decisions based upon that objective reality. And so China has made the concrete decision, which I think is the correct one, which is to relegate your role to that of diplomacy, to peacemaking. It's been the only major country to call for diplomatic talks and that China would be willing to help that process as was necessary. It really has been the only country to do that. The United States and NATO played absolutely no role in this regard. So there you have it. That's China's perspective on that. And one of a, one very interesting development that happens every year, and I do enjoy these reports, I try to read them or read at least part of them, is China publishes an annual report on U.S. human rights. So China has been doing this for several years. And I mean, the reason for it is obvious. China has been slandered, has been demeaned and degraded worldwide by the United States for its so-called quote-unquote human rights record. 
Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Tibet, Taiwan, right? All these flashpoints for anti-China propaganda has led to much, especially in the Western world, believing that China is this king, uh, king master, this, this grand human rights violator in the world, even greater than the United States. So China publishes an annual report saying, wait, 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 wait. The United States has no right to talk about human rights when it's trampling on people's human rights in a large way, in, a, in such a grand way, both at home and abroad. So let me just share the full text of this report. All right. And we can just go over quickly because I think it's important. And while I'm doing this, you can like the stream if you're just coming. You can also subscribe to the channel, hit the notifications bell, which helps you get updates when I am on. And you can support my work at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. That's how you keep this work sustainable financially for as low as a dollar a month, $5 a month. Uh, however much you are able to give, it is very much appreciated. So here it is. This is the report on human rights violations in the United States in 2021. So this has been ongoing. I remember this going back into the Trump era as well. And I believe it started in the Obama era, but don't quote me on that. But I remember reading this these before Trump um, because this, this question has been coming up for quite a while, China's human rights record. So I'll read the foreword. Here are some of the topics, right? They talk about COVID-19. They talk about this entrenched violence, right? So there's some translation issues in entrenched violent thinking, but they talk about gun violence and right, uh, and the violence against uh, people of Asian descent, uh, that kind of thing, right? They talk about the lack of democracy in the United States, the racism that exists in the United States, the migrant crisis that the United States has facilitated across the world, and then the abuse in, uh, of force and sanctions by as interventions in other countries, trampling on human rights there. So here are just some highlights, okay? So the United States, China says, has the world's highest number of COVID-19 cases and deaths, 34.51 million confirmed cases and 480,000 deaths, which far surpassed the numbers of 2020. The average life expectancy in the United States fell 1.13 years from 2020 to 2021, the biggest drop since the Second World War. So that that's damning. So they talk about the public security and the situa situation in the United States deteriorating. Violent crimes are prevalent. You had 693 mass shootings in 2021, which was up 10.1% from 2020. 44,000 people killed in gun violence over the year. You have 420 bills with provisions that restrict voting access have been, that have been introduced in 49 states. Only 7% of young Americans view the country as a quote-unquote healthy democracy. Well, trust in the government from the public has fallen to almost historic lows since 1958. So here you go with the Asian American adults. 81% of them said violence against their communities is rising. Hate crimes against Asians in New York City have jumped 361% from 2020. 59% of Americans said ethnic minority groups do not have equal job opportunities. In 2021, the United States detained more than 1.7 million migrants at its southern border, including 45,000 children. Now, this is under Joe Biden. Violent law enforcement claimed 557 lives, the highest number since 1998, 
which more than doubled that of the previous fiscal year. So we're talking about people dying under migrant detention being bigger than that by a factor of two from the previous year. So that's, I mean, that's damning. And then here you have the U.S. drone strike during its withdrawal, during its withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, killing 10 members of an Afghan family, including seven children, among which the youngest was two years old. The United States still held 39 detainees at Guantanamo Bay Prison. So those are some of the topics that they talk about, right? And they go further into having, you know, despite the most advanced medical equipment and technology, the United States has done the worst in COVID-19 in many ways in terms of total number of infections and fatalities to the virus. So it says it never rethinks its response measures and still lacks effective anti-epidemic plans. Instead, it stoked the origins tracing of COVID-19 and has been keen on passing the buck. So, you know, you get an idea here about what China is thinking in terms of human rights, right? Because oftentimes it's China being leveled these allegations against it, right? China is being accused of genocide of, of Uyghurs, right? Or of suppressing democracy in Hong Kong. But here China is saying that while you cannot prove those allegations, and actually in many ways, right, life for Uyghurs have improved, uh, that's easily supportable. You can see that poverty has been reduced there. You can see that the population of Uyghurs has actually increased. You can see that education and employment opportunities have increased. You can go to Hong Kong and you can see how peace and stability has been more of a feature of society since the national security law. You can see how now even Wall Street Journal and other outlets like the Financial Times are very worried that actually China will begin to address the social issues in Hong Kong and the economic disparities in Hong Kong, which drive a lot of the unrest there, at least from the material standpoint. So in the ideological standpoint, really, that's a lot of foreign interference from the National Endowment for Democracy and others. But nonetheless, while you can both right point out the hypocrisy and also debate even the merits of allegations against China that have been made, the United States has this verifiable and easily documented record of the most egregious human rights violations, including, right, the death of nearly a half million people of COVID-19, which was entirely preventable, entirely. So, right, they go over things like people's mental health deteriorating during the outbreak, uh, where you see that 32.8% in October 2021, people said U.S. adults experienced elevated depressive symptoms, uh, which was up 4%. Uh, in the early 2020 months of the pandemic and 8.5% uh, before the pandemic. So you have this massive spike, right, in mental health issues. The number of homelessness, people homeless is staggering. So they talk about homelessness in the United States. Uh, you have the number of people in permanent, uh, without permanent shelter in Rhode Island increased by more than 85% since January 2021. I mean, that is absolutely staggering that number. Uh, more than 100,000 New York City school children were homeless at some point during the school year from 2020 to 2021. So you see that China is really focusing on things that you could never really level against China. Homelessness of children is not a huge phenomenon in China. It's arguably not a phenomenon at all. Uh, even my experience there, I saw that 
there is this robust social welfare system for children in particular, right? So, ooh, sorry. Oh, no. Okay, am I still around? Let me see. I dropped my mouse. Sorry, guys. Um, I think I'm still on. Okay. I am still on. Sorry about that. So, yeah, China is calling out, as uh, Stephen says in the chat, is calling out the BS. It's saying that you can't claim that China has these huge issues and verify it with things like homelessness and gun violence because it doesn't exist. When I was in China, people were telling me, are you scared of being in the United States? Because you have a lot of gun violence there. And even mainstream stats right, show that China, in terms of safety, has been considered one of the safest countries in Asia for a really long time and overall ranks within, I believe, the top 10 or 15 in the world in terms of safety. So here you have them talk about the elderly and seniors who I used to work with uh, quite closely uh, when I was working as a social worker, right? So here you have just... U.S. politicians following this natural law of selecting the superior and eliminating the inferior, declaring that the elderly could sacrifice for the country and that the vast majority of COVID-19 deaths have been among people 65 or older. And that was entirely preventable, too, by just ensuring that they were protected. And that did not happen. So more than half a million elderly people in the United States have died from COVID-19, accounting for four-fifths of all fatalities. So here you have older people not having access to healthcare services, not having nursing homes, right? I remember this in New York City. It was just absolutely criminal that anyone who was going to a rehab or a nursing home, whether it was short-term or long-term, was in danger of getting COVID-19 because they did not have proper health measures in place. They didn't have proper masks. They didn't have proper, they didn't have the capacity to isolate and what you had was just a rapid spread and you had thousands upon thousands of older people just dying. I mean, it really was just so, uh, I had clients, right, who were so scared of what would happen to them because you have this, they were trying to be isolated and not see people and not, you know, go indoors and you couldn't really in New York City for a long time go to like indoor public venues. And I had them telling me, oh my gosh, if I fall in my apartment and have to go to the hospital and rehab, I could die of this virus. And that was just, that's just such an experience that just did not happen in China. I mean, it happened, there was the Wuhan outbreak, which was quite significant and it was very painful, but at the same time they responded so quickly and were able to put in measures that protected people. And so you don't have that kind of fear anymore. And, and I just think that that's, so criminal in terms of human rights. It's never talked about in that way. And so anyway, I can go on and on and on because this is focusing a lot on each of the sort of details, right? The details of each of these developments, right? And I think this report does a really good job and it, and it honestly cites, it's not making these numbers out of whole cloth, whole cloth. It's talking like the small arms survey, right? These, it's using reports from the United States and the West to validate and verify these numbers, right? The massive gun ownership numbers, 393 million of 857 million civilian guns available are owned by Americans, 46% of the world's civilian gun cachet. I mean, these are staggering numbers, right? The U.S. is an armed society. And I mean, it's one that 
is very violent and it's toward us it's toward each other right these guns are toward inward they're not pointed outward they're not pointed to the powers that be they're pointed at each other right and, and that's by design and so you have you know they cite the children's defense fund in terms of the danger that gunfire guns pose to children in the homes and then you have police brutality right a thousand twenty one hundred twenty four people being killed by the police we can go on and on and on. And they talk about racial justice. They mentioned Dewante Wright. How many mainstream media sources, right? How many U.S. government sources are willing to put Dewante Wright's name in their documents, in their reporting? Very few. So we need to think about this. We really need to think about this because this shows that China, regardless of whether you think this is propaganda, and honestly, this is a piece of propaganda. It's a piece it's about information. It's a response to the information war. It's about getting information about the United States that can shape public opinion because public opinion has been so turned against China without any real verifiable evidence for the claims made against it. But here you have just a laundry list of black people being killed by the police, more than a thousand people being killed per year by the police. And so China is just putting attention, right? P releasing a government report on this, a, a media report through the so-called state-owned outlets. So, I mean, we can go on and on and on, but I do not want to go over all of these numbers. I mean, I think it's so interesting that China has taken these positions. I mean, even here, how many governments in the West are willing to talk about Mumia Abu-Jamal. Not many. There are not many governments in the world that are willing to mention U.S. political prisoners given the costs that it may incur. But here you have China being willing to acknowledge the existence of political prisoners, the, assist, the existence of these egregious human rights violations that are committed against prisoners with people with disabilities, older persons, right? Because the prisons are filled, right? Two million people, the vast majority of them have serious mental illness. The vast majority of them, are, I mean, uh, many of them, there's a large portion of them that are older people, 55, 50 and older. Uh, you have, uh, right, this, you have these jo this joint statement that it cites condemning violations against Mumia Abu-Jamal, who's been prevented from getting necessary healthcare treatment throughout the duration of his incarceration. And uh, they're willing to cite that, a prisoner of African descent, right? And, and they say that the statement said about Jamal, who has been in prison for 40 years, was a social activist and journalist. The 67-year-old suffers from a number of diseases, including chronic heart disease, liver cirrhosis, and high blood pressure. In February 2021, he was diagnosed with COVID-19. While receiving treatment for heart failure in late February, he was handcuffed to his hospital bed for four days. And when he was hospitalized again in early April for surgery, his family lawyers and others were denied access to him. So they're willing to cite this statement from many human rights council working group experts, a special rapporteur on the rights of persons with disabilities, right? This, these, these advocacy groups within the UN Human Rights Council and affiliated bodies so they're, they're willing to cite these and talk about this in a manner that most governments, most media outlets in other countries are just not willing to do. And, and I think that 
that should be commended in many ways. And I think that's a, what makes these kind of reports very interesting. And so, right, it goes into the political rights, talks about, or he even cites Noam Chomsky, but it talks about wealth and policymaking, lobbying here. Uh, you're going to get the bipartisan kind of interests being met by these big corporations and how corrupt the U.S. government system is. And so it's all about making this distinction between all of these slanders, all the slanderous, you know, narrative, the slanderous narrative about China's government and how the U.S. government actually functions, right? So what China is doing here is basically saying, okay, take care of your own house. Take care of your own issues. You have this polarization. You have this inability to meet the interests of the people. You have this corporate governance model. You have this, these lobbies. You have these anti-voting rights acts that are going into place. It's harder and harder to even just vote now, regardless of whether who you vote for is actually meeting your interests. So, you know, we I'm not going to read this verbatim because it's quite a long report, but you should check it out. It's on Xinhua. You can just type in Google. I can actually put it in the chat when I'm done here. So yeah, talking about racial discrimination, the treatment of Asian Americans, all of these deaths that have occurred, right? Discrimination against Muslims, which still is ongoing, right? The indigenous people, the condition of indigenous people. I mean, this is a, a very, this is a very detailed and thought out report that honestly shows U.S. hypocrisy on human rights. And I think it's worth checking out, and I hope you do uh, check it out, because, I mean, think about it. I'm going to put it in the chat right now for you guys to check it out later, so don't leave, but definitely tab it or something. So there you have it. So I wanted to comment on this. I think somebody who was watching a while ago said, hey, comment on this report, China's that China made about U.S. human rights. And, and so uh, there you have it. It's, it's an important report. It's one, it's honestly a helpful resource because it's hard to get all that information in one place. I think it's a very good tool for us to use to say, okay, well, we're about equality. We're about a more fair and just international order. If the United States is able to level these accusations against China, then China not only has the right to level allegations and accusations against the U.S. for human rights violations, but we also have the right to understand China's perspective and see if it actually matches up with the reality. And everything that I was reading, it matches up with the reality of the situation. The reality is, is that the United States neglected the people, especially the most vulnerable throughout this COVID-19 pandemic crisis. It is true that racial injustice and uh, right supremacy and racism, whether it's toward uh, migrants fleeing countries that the United States has destroyed, or whether it is against Black people in the United States or against Indigenous people, those conditions remain deplorable and that injustice remains intense and in many ways worsening under the uh, Democratic Party Biden regime. The endless wars that the United States wages abroad, right? I mean, you can just cite that uh, drone strike by the United States during the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. 
as just one example of so many in which the United States has criminally interfered in the affairs of other countries and devastated the lives of the people. And so where's the lie is what I say. Where is the lie? China is not telling lies here. They're just stating facts as a way to balance the record sheet to show that, okay, you can level accusations against us about genocide, about democracy, and all of this. And we will also say and state the facts about your situation and uh, approach a situation like that. The unfortunate thing is, and that's why I shared the report, is that China, just similar to Russia, doesn't have an upper hand in the propaganda war. That's why imperialism is still hegemonic, right? U.S. imperialism, because China doesn't have the same kind of access. Does it, this, the information does not spread from China. The propaganda against China really prevents people from being curious at all about it, its perspective. And so there is a lost opportunity there to understand the global balance of forces in a more realistic way in a way that actually is congruent with the conditions on the ground. But uh, there you have it. China is still attempting to assert its legitimacy and the fact that the United States does not have a legitimate claim to being an arbiter of quote unquote human rights. And so in this Russia-Ukraine conflict, if we go back to that, the United States has no right to claim even Russia is violating international law here, even if, yeah, sure, Russia's military operation is not congruent with the UN Geneva Conventions, right? It's not. But the US has no right to talk about China or anyone else coming in to the rescue of international law when the United States has trampled on it from the beginning. The United States has made itself international law. That is how it approaches the world. It approaches the world as a zero-sum game. Do what we say or suffer consequences. And that is the epitome of violating uh, the UN's, uh, the UN conventions and uh, international law itself. So that is what I wanted to share with you all about uh, China's human rights report because I think it does expose the hypocrisy very well and I think it does lead to further questions that we need to continue to explore and continue to bring up with people. We need to say to our comrades, our friends, our colleagues, our circles, uh, in our any kind of work that we're doing, journalism or otherwise, that uh, the United States has no right to claim superiority or more, whether it's moral, political, or any other kind of superiority in the realm of human rights or really any other issue like international law or anything that has to do with human progress or this idea of peace or any concept of it because the United States is the foremost warmongering state in the world. This isn't whataboutism. This isn't any of that. This is just a statement of fact. The United States is the world's terrorist state. It is the state that is supplying weapons and supporting and propping up the most reactionary regimes around the world. And that's because it is the reactionary regime of the world. It is the foremost imperialist state. 
in the world. Militarism is its principal weapon at this time because it is declining more significantly in all of the other areas. And it is also now affecting military policy as well, as you can see pretty clearly in the Russia-Ukraine crisis, where the United States does feel pigeonholed in a lot of ways. And now the only real winners in this case happen to be military contractors, which don't give really two craps about military strategy, so to speak. They are willing to take advantage of any opportunity to sell their weapons and to flood the market uh, with their weapons of mass destruction. And that's exactly what's happening in the Russia-Ukraine crisis. NATO doesn't feel like it can go much further than arming countries and building up military capacity, uh, militarizing Ukraine. Weapons contractors are perfectly fine with that. But the military strategists understand that this is actually showing the hand of the United States as being a paper tiger in a lot of ways, because Ch Russia and China, and I think in even larger respect, are countries that cannot be bullied. And they won't be bullied in the manner that the United States was able to bully Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, countries that it was able to unilaterally swoop into and destroy. Uh, that era is actually over, right? Even in smaller countries in Latin America, you're seeing that post-2011, post-Libya, right, the United States' grip on both the narrative and military dominance has actually stagnated. I won't say that it has waned because it has the capacity to keep it very large, but it has stagnated in the sense that the chaos of Libya was really a precursor to the chaos that you see in Ukraine, the chaos that you see everywhere else, right? what you see in Syria, where there was a valiant resistance that was successful in a lot of ways and has led to a real virtual stalemate there, a U.S. occupation, an ongoing war of mass destruction that Israel has played a really heavy hand in now with these seemingly daily bombings of uh, Syria. But nonetheless, it does not spell this kind of... Uh, I think trajectory, it doesn't show that the United States is on this trajectory of further stability, growth, and the capacity to exist in a manner uh, that progresses even its own aims for, let's say, modernization and the end of history, right? This idea that the United States in, capital, in its capitalist model of development will be the most dominant one. Nothing really says that that is going to be the case. A lot of recent political maneuvers from the Russia-Ukraine crisis to the ways in which the Biden administration has uh, operated under COVID-19 and an economic crisis, everything really points to the United States uh, doing everything it can to maintain its grip on, on, on dominance while it's slowly but also in many ways, rapidly erodes, both in legitimacy, which is a longstanding issue for the United States' political system, its economic system, its in international role in the world, but also in its capacity to govern, right? This is a general crisis that the United States is in. The United States is in a general crisis of imperialism. It is rife with economic, political, and military contradictions that have sharpened to the point where 
something has got to give. And so in many ways, what has given is uh, what has fallen through is the United States' capacity to achieve its objectives in any kind of stable manner. A lot of things just end up going backfiring, end up having this blowback to it, right? Look at the pullout of Afghanistan, for example. Look at what happened in Libya. Look what's happening in Ukraine. We can go on and on and on. And then look what's happening right here in the United States, right? This uh, this escalating political crisis of legitimacy, which is not showing any signs of letting up and is going to have, I think, real consequences for the midterm elections for 2024. And of course, it will have real consequences for working people, for ordinary people, for oppressed people, because it's it's up to us to chart a, a path forward out of it, right? It is up to us to start to build that independent orientation. It's up to us to define what what it really means to be on the left, what it means to be a socialist, what it means to be a communist under these kind of conditions, and really put out a program and an analysis and a vision that people can get behind as they are struggling against the boss, as they're struggling on the streets against war, as they're struggling against privatization, as they're struggling against police brutality and racism, right? I mean, all of these issues are interconnected. And uh, here I am in the media world, independent media, trying to do my best to provide that perspective, which can help matters rather than hinder them. So I appreciate you coming on to this stream, everybody. I appreciate it. It was, it was quick-ish. I ended up being on for an hour and a half. But with that said, do not leave yet. I'm going to end with announcements. So before you leave, of course, like the stream, subscribe to the channel, hit the notifications bell, and support my work at patreon.com slash dannyhaifong and whatever amount. It is all very much appreciated. That's how you support this channel. It's how you support my ongoing work. And with that said, again, do not leave yet because I want to just reiterate some announcements for you. Okay. So tomorrow, be back here on the left lens, 4 p.m. Eastern time this time. And we will be with Gerald Horn. Margaret and I will come together to talk to Dr. Gerald Horn about the Ukraine crisis, about the Black Left perspective on the Ukraine crisis. So that's already up. You can go on to the YouTube channel and make sure that you are ready and waiting to view that. So hit the bell for that reminder as well. And of course, I will post it in the community post and elsewhere all over my platforms to make sure that you know about it. But if you're here, uh, please do come tomorrow and hear Gerald Horn's thoughts about the Ukraine crisis. What is to be done in Eastern Europe was the topic of his last article with Black Agenda Report. So it should be a very good conversation. And then Saturday, make sure Saturday you are coming to Friends of Socialist China's event on 21st Century Socialism, right? I'm actually going to share the tweet with you all of the webinar right now because I do want you all to register if you're able to. It's going to be 12 p.m. Eastern. We have a great panel of speakers and... I think it's a really good opportunity. So here you go. Here you have Friends of Socialist China Twitter. And the webinar is going to be this Saturday, March 19th at 12 p.m. Eastern. And you have Dilma Rousseff, who's going to be the keynote speaker. So that's amazing. Okay. 
You won't want to miss her thoughts on China, Latin America relations, socialism, and everything related to the two. You will have Margaret Kimberly there as well. Okay, so Margaret Kimberly will be speaking. You will have Ma Hui, who is the Chinese ambassador to Cuba. He is really a good comrade and uh, someone you should follow, but he will be speaking as well. You have Ben Norton, also a multipolarista coming on, Carlos Ron, who's a longtime member of the Bolivarian movement and uh, president of the Simone Bolivar Institute in Venezuela, Camila Escalante, who does Casachuan News out of Bolivia. You should definitely check her out, but make sure that you hear her speak. And then, of course, you have Elias Jabor over at the University of Rio de Janeiro. He is a Marxist economist, and you should definitely uh, hear him speak. So we have just a, a really good panel of speakers for this event. And so you can go to the Friends of Socialist China Twitter page and register. I will also put that in the chat. So uh, make sure you're there on Saturday, okay? And uh, it should be good. Carlos Martinez, who I co-edit the, the project with, Friends of Socialist China with, he will be speaking as well to kick it off. So... Yeah, a lot of good things to come, all right? It's busy, busy, busy. I'm also publishing an article based on my remarks from the event I did with the anti-war groups in Canada. I did an event uh, about the Ukraine crisis, a webinar, and I'll be publishing those remarks with some extended points in it because things have developed since then. A lot of what I've talked about here, but I think it will be a good resource about Russia's perspective that you know I think will be helpful. So I'll publish that on Substack. I was also on George Galloway's program yesterday, the mother of all talk shows. I'll probably post that interview also on my channel. It's a short one. It's about 12 minutes on my channel some point in the coming days, maybe tomorrow. Uh, later on, it will premiere after our stream. So a lot of good things going on. I got a lot happening um, actually, uh, my wife is transitioning jobs, so actually things may get a little slower because we're thinking about taking a trip during that period. She'll have about three to four weeks off in between jobs, so I am probably going to be a little less active, but nonetheless, I will try to get on here. Uh, I'm going to try to bring some more people together on here as well. I'm also working with some folks right slowly to try to get on other platforms right to just protect the content here because it's necessary right we're in this point where i i have you know i'm in this point where i have to think about that so i i know you all have been suggesting in the chat right rockfin others I'm, I'm thinking about it right there are so many options and so and there's only so much i can do on my own so i am you know i'm getting people are have reached out to help and that's great and it'll just take some time but eventually we will, you know, we will be expanding past the YouTube space. I've already, you know, moved to call an app for podcasting. And so, you know, this is going to be a transition. Okay. So with that said, though, I'm going to go. And before you go, make sure you like the stream. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit the notifications bell because tomorrow we do have a really good stream that Mark Kimberly and I will be holding with Gerald Horn, Dr. Gerald Horn. And 
with that said, you know, before you leave too, consider through Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Be sure to support my work if you're able, right? That's how you support both this channel. That's how you support my writing. That's how you support all the media work and other projects that I'm a part of as we move forward in this anti-imperialist struggle. So it was good to be with all of you this afternoon. Take good care, peace out, and I'll see you tomorrow, hopefully, for our 4 p.m. conversation with Dr. Gerald Horn. Take care, everyone, and have a good evening, afternoon, morning, wherever you are.